What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepker. In the programme today, the British Red Cross is celebrating its 150th anniversary. But will NGOs and organisations like the Red Cross survive another 150 years? I'm going to speak to the Executive Director, Zoe Abrams. That's coming up. But first of all, let's talk a bit about the warning from UK scientists that actually current testing and contact tracing in the UK is inadequate to prevent a second wave of coronavirus after schools reopen next month. Now, one of the scientists advising the government has even said that pubs or other activities in England may need to close in order to allow schools to reopen. Professor Graham Medley told the BBC that there may need to be a trade-off with schools seen as a priority for children's well-being. Then, the local government minister, Simon Clark, though, insists that the system in England is working. Have a listen. We reach over 80% of positive uh, test results and contact over 75% of their close contacts. So this is a programme which is, which is delivering and which is helping to keep us all safer. So, delivering safety. It comes as the government considers a contained strategy now that could prevent travel in and out of London. That's according to a spokesman for the Prime Minister. Well, I'm pleased to say that joining us this morning uh, is Rupert Huck, who is Labour MP for Ealing Central and Acton. So, obviously, good morning, Rupert. You'll be very much focused on this idea of a London lockdown. It was floated in the Sunday newspapers. was sort of denied on the Sunday news talk programmes and then a spokesperson for the government now says that yes it is part of the thinking. Is a London lockdown the right way forward if we do get a second coronavirus wave, Rupa? I mean look I think this government seems to be very confused. The left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. So again as you pointed out, many times they announce something and then they have to deny it and then it's uh, so I think we need to wait to see what the actual detail is. But from what I understand, um, London figures were sort of uh, dipping, actually. Um, Mm. But again, the fact that they've taken away the daily press conference means that that sort of easy four o'clock tune in and see what the figures are, uh, transparency has gone. Uh, they used to, even that was being slimmed down by the day as as it was unfolding. So they used to have the sort of global totals until it became apparent that we had the second worst death toll in the world, certainly highest mm. in Europe. So then they withdrew that element of it. Of the, It always felt like a COVID Olympics. So, I mean, yeah, any measure has to be proportionate 
um, and commensurate. Yeah. Um, so we need transparency. We need to know what these figures are, what the rationale is. Because sometimes it looks like they just do knee-jerk stuff for the sake of it. Well, I mean, as you say, though, the the, the deaths surely would um, would push any government to be tougher and to think more carefully about what they're going to do in order to get it right potentially the next time around. I mean, we hear from researchers that the possibility with the second coronavirus wave may be that it could be two to 2.3 times larger than the first wave. So surely knee-jerk in this situation is a good plan. I mean, again, uh, from I talked to my local council to my police uh, as well, uh, chief superintendent regularly throughout all this. Hmm. And uh, the fact that Dominic Cummings breached that first lockdown and so brazenly sort of, je ne regret rien, did the press conference. Hmm. Uh, a lot of uh, people just didn't take government messaging seriously from that moment onwards. Yes, but Ruby, so, let me pick up on that and jump in, because I've heard this from other Labour MPs too, the kind of Dominic Cummings. I mean, that is some... I think any we- MP anywhere would have had a record inbox hmm. of people that were really angry about that. Yes, so of course. Not just but, Labour. But, so but Labour were not able to hold the Conservative government to account on that or indeed sort of force him to go. I mean, shaming didn't work and no other measure did either. Well, I think it's obstinacy, really, that... Um, I don't know. We have a prime minister who's so dependent on one person because remember, 60 conservative MPs, uh, including Theresa May, condemned Dominic Cummings' actions. We had a government resignation. Um, Mm -hmm. Douglas Ross, the uh, Scottish office minister, went on that point. So uh, we just have a very pig-headed, obstinate government that's plowing its own furrow and they've got a majority of 80 Mm. so which is kind of bad for democracy you could say however big the majority is they don't really have to listen to reason so I don't think it's the Labour Party's fault Dominic Cummings didn't go Mm. just uh, they I I don't know I mean he's got an amazing spell over the Prime Minister who feels that he can't manage without him. Rupert uh, let's talk about school schools reopening I mean it's a month away but I know myself as a parent and I'm sure plenty of our listeners out there are absolutely laser focused on that first week of September whether or not the kids get back into school do you think in your local constituency at this stage they're going to reopen can schools reopen safely was there big take up of the few weeks of schooling that did happen uh, towards the end of the summer term well, let's not forget, for the kids of key workers, schools have been going throughout, yes. including all the half-terms we've had, the Easter break, which, you know, they don't usually do that, so they've gone over and above, but that's for a much smaller number of pupils than a whole return. What I've noticed, I mean, I'm a parent myself, mm. and in fact, I've got one with uh, GCSE results, these phantom results Ooh. are going to come out on the 20th. Um, <laughs> And I remember, actually, when Gavin Williamson said in the House of Commons, these children will be so upset they're missing their exams. I thought he doesn't know children, <laughs> does he? Most of them are pretty delighted they got out of them. I mean, look, we do need our kids to get back to school because they've had six months of nothingness. And it's the years, actually, I think it's the year ends, is it? And mm. 13s or something. The the ones the year before the exam, um, yeah. 12s, aren't they, that have miss six months without the the ones like my son they'd finished their syllabus they're only revising what i have found from my experience is that um there's been an uneven provision actually between the state sector and the private schools uh it does seem how the other half lives but um 
gosh, one of the schools in my seat, I think, was having daily Zoom curriculum entirely um, registration at 8.40 as normal, Mm. Um, whereas uh, the state schools don't have the ability Mm. to do that. And also, apparently, there were safeguarding issues with teachers, pictures going viral and stuff. Um, So it seems it's been really unsatisfactory this time. We do need to get back in a safe way. Um, But the thing is, we don't have that test, track and isolate app which was meant to be world beating. It was meant to be coming on the 1st of June. We're in August. There's no sign of that. Mm. The app that they were trialing on the Isle of Wight. I just think a lot of these things have just displayed a breathtaking incompetence from our government. So, yes, so that, we have to get yes. back. But they need to get a move on with this track and trace thing, which there's no sign of it in sight. Yeah, absolutely. The whole country waiting for for track and trace to come fully into effect. Um, Look, I want to talk about another issue, though, specifically around um, the Labour Party. Len McCloskey, General Secretary of Unite Union, obviously a big contributor to the Labour Party coffers. Um, How can Labour reassure voters, Jewish or otherwise, that anti-Semitism and whistleblowers are actually valued when Len McCloskey has criticised the Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, so outrightly, uh, talking about a clear miscalculation by actually settling the legal dispute over anti-Semitism whistleblowers in the Labour Party? How can you reassure Jewish voters and others about this issue? Well, as Keir Starmer said the other week at PMQs, the Labour Party is under new management. And so this fresh leadership has acted very decisively. I think almost the first call that Keir Starmer did on becoming Labour leader was um, with the different uh, Jewish groups, Jewish Labour, Board of Deputies. Mm. And by sort of saying that there's no space for this in our party, we're meant to be an anti-racist party. What is the Labour Party? If it's but not but are you prepared to forfeit the funds in order to do that? Um, yeah, I mean, he has settled those in full very swiftly. Um, and I think a line needs to be drawn under this and we need to learn from this moving forward. But Well, no, I meant that I meant the funds from from Unite, from the unions, not, not oh. the funds to pay to pay off uh, to pay individuals. I mean, I think Len McCloskey, is he not at the end of his term? I don't know if he's just sort of. I don't know, in his last gasp, I, I think, I'm not a huge expert on his employment contract, but I think he is on the way out. Um, I think he doesn't represent mainstream opinion in the Labour Party, so he's one voice, we're a big party. Membership is actually going up and up under our new leadership. Um, so he he's huffing mm-hmm. and puffing a bit, but I understand that he's uh, sort of at the end of his time, he's led that union for a long time um, and it doesn't represent the leadership view. Just lastly, um, I know that this is a um, also the, the summer recess, of course, uh, a word on the House of Lords and these 36 new peers that the Prime Minister has um, has put forward. Accusations, of course, of cronyism, but it's been years and the House of Lords reforms have not happened. Do you think that there actually are going to take place in the next few months with Brexit and the virus, briefly? I mean, look, the committee I was on, the uh, Public Administration Constitutional Affairs, we recommended in 2018 it should be slimmed down to a size of 600. These people are on a daily rate. Um, they're massively expensive to keep. And suddenly to swell the ranks so it goes up to 830, it's just inexplicable. And it is jobs for the boys, the Prime Minister's own brother who walked out of his cabinet because he didn't like the Brexit policy, mm. has been rewarded with a period. 
Um, yep. Other failed Labour MPs, because of their Brexity leanings, have been rewarded. Um, Theresa May's husband gets, OK, it's not a peerage, but a knighthood. What reason is there behind that? I mean, it just stinks, I think. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I want to have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. So Boris Johnson's government will invest nearly £1.3 billion in building projects and also provide £2 billion in energy efficiency grants. That's in an effort to create jobs and also rally the pandemic-hit UK economy. So the government hopes that this new fund and brownfield building scheme will deliver over 70,000 homes and they estimate that all the funded projects could create 85,000 jobs. Aha, I hear you cry. We've heard those sorts of promises on building before, haven't you? Haven't we? Well, uh, 2019 was the strongest year for new home registrations, actually in over a decade, according to the National House Building Council. But the government has, yes, faced criticism for falling well behind on its own target of 300,000 new homes per year. So let's see how far the build, build, build mantra actually develops into building affordable new homes. Meanwhile, the Shadow Justice Secretary David Lammy has called on Twitter to be faster at stamping out racist threats after receiving abuse online. The Labour MP reported a user to the Metropolitan Police on Sunday after getting a tweet using a racial slur. But the user's account wasn't suspended until Monday after further tweets from Lammy highlighting the abuse. A Twitter spokesman said that it had suspended the account for violating its hateful conduct policy. But the Home Secretary, Preeti Patel, called for Twitter to take decisive action faster in such cases. And then finally, classified documents about US-UK trade discussions were stolen by Russian hackers from the former Trade Minister Liam Fox's email account. The documents were leaked during the run-up to the 2019 general election and used by Jeremy Corbyn as evidence that the government was planning to put the NHS up for sale. Remember that headline? Well, the revelation was first reported by Reuters on Monday, citing two people with knowledge of the leak. The Kremlin did not respond to Reuters' request for comment and Fox's spokesman declined to comment to Reuters but obviously we're following all of those um, accusations the back and forth when it comes to hacking and security uh, and democracy here in the UK so those are the top stories that we're following for you in uh, British politics. Now, let's go to our main conversation then for the rest of the programme. So the British Red Cross, as I mentioned, is today celebrating its 150th anniversary. It was formed a few weeks after war broke out between France and Prussia in 1870 in order to help sick and wounded soldiers in time of war, but later became part of an international movement of humanitarian organisations. But these sorts of energy 
NGOs are now under significant threat with 84% of charities reporting a decrease in their income as the coronavirus pandemic and the lockdown has severely hit fundraising. So for more, I'm joined this morning by Zoe Abrams, who is the executive director of the British Red Cross. Good morning, uh, Zoe. Thanks for being with us. Look, um, just give us a picture of how bad it is right now for uh charities in the UK with really um, these dire warnings, particularly from the Institute of Fundraising, about the impact on NGOs like yours? Well, we know that coronavirus is, is affecting the whole country. Indeed, as we know, it's affecting the whole world. So there's no surprise that it's impacting the charity sector as well. Um, the British Red Cross is uh, the uh, primary emergency response organisation in the country. And, and, and we've managed to um, attract donations from very generous members of the public as well as from corporates and philanthropists during this time but we you know we have a, a very high profile and we're in a privileged position there are many other small charities who are really really struggling mm. um, and uh, and as we go forward through this crisis which is not yet not yet over obviously we will all have to lean into um, looking after the voluntary and community charity uh, sector because it's so utterly vital in terms of meeting the needs of the most vulnerable in society. So about the fundraising efforts then, um, does this mean that you will increasingly rely on wealthy individuals? Plenty of stories on the Bloomberg Terminal uh, over the last few weeks about the wealth of individuals, of families and and, and the world's richest increasing uh, during coronavirus. Um, will you be relying on those sorts of people even more? We'll certainly be seeking out strategic partnerships with people who have been very successful in business or in their enterprises and want to make a difference. And indeed, this country has a long and proud history of philanthropy, starting with the Victorians. There are many charities that um, can trace their roots back to that era. So I think that people who have, um, who have succeeded have a massive role to play in terms of making the whole, the whole society better for people who are vulnerable and who need a helping hand. You mentioned smaller charities in England, so they have until mid-August to apply for the funds that the government has offered, the Coronavirus Community Support Fund, um, and, what, £200 million of that. Uh, so the government has made some efforts to shore up charities, which we know are hurting, but I'm sure that you'll tell me that that's no way enough. Do you think that the government should, will, can put more towards NGOs and other charities? The government has really tried to be there for the charity sector. And, um, of course, there's, there is absolutely more that can and, and should be done to support um, all those organisations, small and large, who are um, at the front line in communities of helping people who know the people that need the help most. They, um, you know, what I would urge the government... Uh, is to remember how important a rich and diverse voluntary and community sector is to work in partnership, hand-in-hand, hand, with local and national government to really making sure that the people who need help get the help that they need. Um, and, you know, various of the government's uh, really important and, and um, uh, commendable policies, for example, uh, looking to increase the, the amount of social prescribing there is in relation to the health service, which mm -hmm. is where you refer people on to... Um, support that sort of non-medical for non-clinical needs that relies on there being um, people who are volunteering to for example 
um, befriend people and help them get their connections back so that they can tackle loneliness. And as we know, loneliness compounds both um, physical and mental health problems. Mm. So it's going to be continue to be working hand in glove with government and the and the charity sector to be able to manage this crisis and future crisis that that will come upon us inevitably. But I suppose my question is, is is that a priority? And when you talk about sort of helping people in communities, I mean, quite alarming numbers, pro bono economics, for example, talking about um, 90% of charities telling them that COVID-19 is going to have a negative impact on their ability to actually meet the charity's objectives over the next six months. So it's about kind of being able to deliver and, and surely that's being massively curtailed. Is that the case for the British Red Cross? Well, I think we have to get really focused. So, you know, it's a difficult time for, for everybody. The British Red Cross had to temporarily close its shops during mm. um, lockdown. And that's a very important income stream for us. I'm delighted that they're opening up going forward. But, you know, it, yes, we do have to focus both as our own organisation, but other organisations too need to get really, really focused on where the vulnerability is the greatest and um, and really make sure that we're making the biggest difference for those people. Um, and, you know, we will have to be, uh, as a sector, um, really, really mindful about the, the wider um, situation we find ourselves in. Yeah. I mean, there's kind of a number of aspects to that, which is we're expecting need to increase. Mm. because That's what happens in in recessions, let alone pandemics um, and recessions. Um, and and high really unemployment that we're no doubt expecting. Yeah. Yeah, and there's, I mean, and you know, as I said at the beginning, we're an emergency response organisation in the UK. We're seeing the impact of climate change on um, uh, more extreme weather, mm. so flooding, heat waves, and those are the kind of um, emergencies in the UK we respond to. Yeah. Internationally, a, a decreased gross domestic product means a decrease in the 0.7% that this country has committed um, uh, to provide on international aid and development so that also will have an impact on those organizations that are focused on the the wider world and the amount of good that they can do there so these are are tough times so just briefly on that i want to get to all my points uh, just just Mm -hmm. very swiftly on the shops on the high streets are all of your shops going to reopen are you going to have to close some We've been taking a phased, phased approach to reopening them, and we are delighted that we are turning a, um, a higher profit in them than we um, had uh, forecast. So uh, the signs are good. I mean, it is an opportunity to look as an, as an organisation, and all organisations should be doing this, about uh, making strategic choices, again, about focusing re- uh, resources. So our programme of reopening, we focused on the most profitable shops, and we're seeing how it goes. We don't yeah. know if further local lockdowns will be imposed. We don't know what winter will bring in terms of if there's um, uh, an uptick in number of coronavirus cases, let alone yeah, uh, flu season, which we normally work on. So we, yeah. we, we provide services to the NHS in terms of easing winter pressures and making sure that people who, who can leave hospital um, but don't have the support at home, they need to be able to vacate the bed that they're in yeah. we help those people get home so that more people can be admitted to hospital for example look so, um, it, it's it is great work in mm-hmm. very very difficult circumstances i just want to end on a thought please about your 150th anniversary i, I don't want to leave uh, listeners hanging for that what exactly are you doing and what does it kind of mean to the organization to have managed to make it through for so many years 
it means the world. It means the world to everybody who's volunteered for the British Red Cross over the history of our 150 years. Um, and, it, you know, it's worth saying that we made it through two world wars. So this pandemic is is really, really challenging. But, you know, we, we've we been in challenging situations before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we've been there through supporting the NHS from its creation. We responded to the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami in Southeast Asia. We were there for the domestic terrorism incidents in um, uh, the Manchester Arena attack, the London Bridge attack. We were there during the Grenfell Tower fire. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.